Sure. Well, good evening. Welcome back. Uh, those of you who are online, welcome. Uh, we're going to begin with a time of singing, but before we do, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into some songs. Father God, thank you for this evening. We pray that uh, we as a church would uh, seek unity, uh, would seek um, extending to one another an undefiled love that Lance was even talking about this morning. Um, and as we, as we sing these songs, would they be uh, truths that we uh, don't restrict to this evening, but that we live out practically? Um, especially this first song, Lord, the servant song is just really a song of unity, and I just pray that uh, we would be characterized as servants, because um, even your son didn't come necessarily to be served, but he came to serve, and so we pray that we would um, likewise serve the body and serve others, Lord, and in your name we pray, amen. All right, well, let's start with this first song, the servant song. I love it. It's so good. I just think it's good even going into this message, but even kind of on the tail end of Lance's message. Brother, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I might have the grace to let me be my servant too. I just think that's so interesting. It's like the reciprocity even that Lance was talking about. It's just I serve and, and there's service that's extended right back to you. So I don't know. I love that. So let's sing this together. This is a servant song. Let's sing uh, Be Thou My Vision. I just, I love this song. I know it's, we sing it so frequently, um, and I hope it doesn't, it doesn't become too familiar because these lyrics are so rich. 
uh, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thy mine inher- thou mine inheritance now and always. And I just love this part. Thou and thou only be first in my heart. High king of heaven, my treasure thou art. And sing with you family version. King of Heaven. They are many, His mercy is. 
this next song too I think these are songs that we need especially now Christ our hope in life and death what a comfort that is and what confidence that gives us I think that's so helpful to be singing these songs and living these truths but I love songs because they obviously just infect your mind and so singing songs like these just really bring us such comfort so sing Christ our hope our hope in life and death in Christ alone in Christ alone what is our only confidence that our souls to him belong who holds our days within his hands rose apart from his command and what will keep us to truth can calm the troubled soul and God 
is good, and God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, He holds our faith when fears arise. Who stands above the stormy tribe? Who sends the waves and that brings night unto the shore? sing and oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing hallelujah now and ever we confess in Christ our hope in life and death sing unto the grave unto He lives, Christ He lives, and what reward will heaven bring? An everlasting life with Him. There we, there we will rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours. Sing, oh, sing. And oh, sing. as we uh, close out and then move into some, some word. Father God, we are just so grateful and thankful that we have this confidence that we can say Christ our hope in life and death. We pray that we would be Christians that are marked not by fear, but by trust, trusting that you are a faithful God, that you will be faithful to provide and faithful to, to sanctify us. You're such a good father to us, and we pray that we would remember these things that we would hear these truths, and as Chris now begins to preach, we pray that hearts would be moved and we would receive the word with gratitude and with joy. What a privilege it is to hear the word and to be fed by it, and so we pray that we would take advantage of this and bathe in the truths. In your name we pray. So there, there are handouts with an outline if you're an, if a note taker or you like an outline to follow along. Yep. What's that? Uh, yes. Let's get her started. So we are, oh, thank you, babe. We are in Acts again. 
obviously, we're in a series here, but it's good to be back after the holidays and all the mixture of uh, schedules with switching from Wednesdays now to Sunday nights, so thank you for your flexibility. Uh, we are in Acts 6 tonight, and again, I, I said that there's uh, outlines if you'd like one. I'm a note taker, so I like printing those out. Um, but yeah, we're in Acts chapter 6, uh, verses, verses 1 through 7 tonight, and I like to pray before beginning, so let's pray. It helps me focus my thoughts and gets us going here, and thank you, Joel, for uh, the songs. These are great. This is really good. Christ alone. Oh, so good. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for what we've already enjoyed this morning as we came together uh, as your body, your people. Lord, I just love to think that around the world people were doing this all day. Uh, in each time zone as the sun rose and then people started getting up and then going to church and uh, just millions of people singing like we did, praises to your name in different languages. Lord, and then to open the word, to, to learn of you, to receive from you, from your word, to grow and to change and to know you better. Um, so, Lord, I thank you that we get to come back again tonight as your people. And, Lord, I pray that as we end this day, it would be just kicking off uh, what we have the rest of this week, that it would set our minds right as we go into the work week. Uh, Lord, that we would remember our identity we belong to you. We're your children. We are, as Christians, followers of Christ, your people that go out into the world, into the workplace, into our communities to be salt and light. So, Lord, I, I thank you for the privilege it is to be called yours. And, Lord, I, I pray that tonight as we open your word again, as we continue through the book of Acts, the, the work, the continuing work of Jesus Christ through the Spirit by the apostles, to build Christ's church. God, I just pray that as we look at this, that we would <clears throat> first see your sovereign hand guiding and directing, and that we'd see your, that you, how Christ's name is lifted up, and he's the preeminent one throughout this. But I also thank you, Lord, for the, the story of real people dealing with real situations. And there's hope as we see people who are imperfect and, Lord, how it is dealt with by you. Lord, so I pray that we would learn from the early church, our, our brothers and sisters of the past. And we, may we continue that long legacy of faithfulness as well. Here at Bethany, and, Lord, for churches around the world, may you be lifted up and glorified. So we pray for your blessing now, Lord. Help us to understand, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and then hearts ready to learn so we can live in your ways. So we love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read the passage uh, as we get going here, but to remember the context, we're in the first chapters of Acts. We've seen the birth of the church, and we're in Acts 6, so this is maybe a couple, three, four months since Pentecost. This is a snapshot in the life of the early church, and, um, and we've seen after the, the bursting forth of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that the church exploded. There's 3,000 believers in one day. <laughs> Again, I say this every time, what a sermon. <laughs> Not because of Peter, because of the work of the Spirit. But in one day, 3,000 converts to add to the 120 that were there. And then over the, over the weeks and months, we just see the church exploding. And, and some people say at this time, there's probably around 20,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem. 
So I've told you that, that there's writings from that time from historians that say that the average population, not during the great feasts when all sorts of people would come, it, it burst up to about almost 2 million people, but regular uh, population was about somewhere between 65 to 80,000. So if there's 20,000 Christians, do you understand why, we looked at this several weeks ago, why they said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. A quarter, it could be a quarter of the population now were followers of Jesus Christ in the same city where he was condemned and crucified. <laughs> so don't, we have to remember that when we hop into a passage, we're, we have to immerse ourselves and go backwards. Right? This is, this is a Jewish book. This is a, a book that takes us back 2,000 years, and, and it's about real people. So when something happens, remember, we're in a narrative text that's describing a lot of things. The point of a narrative is we're supposed to imagine what it might have been like as much as possible and enter into the story because this story is his story. It's our history as Christians. Right? And so... Again, imagine, that's why I try to stop and make us think, what would you have thought when you saw this happen, or you heard, or you saw, because we're supposed to enter into it. So we're, we don't want to treat this like a story that's make-believe. This is real. And, and so that's, that's part of narrative, is we want to understand it, what's happening in the story so we can learn from it and draw principles from it. And at this point, starting in Acts chapter 3, through this point here, there are four major tests or attacks on the church, this fledgling church that's just beginning, and we see that where the church, how God just directs the church through the attacks, through the trial, to strengthen the church, purify it, and build it up. The first one was right after the healing of the blind or of the lame man at the temple. It's a public miracle. Everyone knew who this guy was. Peter, you know, Peter and John, uh, we don't have silver or gold, but, you know, what we do have, we give to you, stand up and walk. You know, he's praising God and he's walking this huge miracle, but the local establishment, the Sadducees, were attacked. I mean, they, they, they were annoyed, so they went on the attack. So the first attack on the early church was external persecution. And then we see the church's response is that they rejoiced. They weren't praying for the end of persecution. What did they pray for? More boldness. <laughs> right? So it's something that should challenge us. Because when tough times come, the first thing, and mostly we pray for, Lord, take this from me. Right? It's not bad to pray for that, but in the midst of persecution, they're praying, God, give us more boldness to proclaim your name. Because don't forget, our purpose on this earth as Christians is to evangelize. We can praise God for eternity. We will. We can praise him here now, and we'll praise him for eternity in heaven. We can grow. We will be growing in knowledge. Do you know that? We still, we won't, we don't know everything. Once we become saved, we won't know everything. We'll still be learning, right? There's all sorts of things we can do in heaven, but there's one thing we cannot do once eternity starts. Evangelize. There'll be no more sin, no more sadness. So don't forget, our purpose here is to be salt and light. I know I bring that up a lot, but it's so important that we remember that. We're, we're a church that is devoted to preaching and teaching. I've been a pastor a long time now, and one of the downsides, and I love to study and to teach, but one of the potential downsides is that we forget who we're supposed to reach, right? Because we, we've got to remember why God planted us here. 
We're looking at the church beginning, but it's planted in Jerusalem like it's supposed to. The city of the great king, and it's going to explode outwards. We're outwards, right? 2,000 years later, we're on the other side of the earth from where it started. But we have the same purpose, to be salt and light. Here, persecution, God, give us more boldness, right? Second challenge to the church wasn't external persecution. It was who? There was two people. Good, Ananias and Sapphira. It was the challenge to the purity of the church. They were bringing deceit and the pursuit of status. And that could destroy a young church. If we start having people pursue, you know, higher positions by, you know, what I give and look at how great I am. And that kind of pride, you know, if, we allow, if it's allowed to take root, it can destroy a church. Because the main characteristic of a church is to be, you know, humility. That keeps the unity together. But it's supposed to be of love. And, and pride and arrogance do not promote that at all. Right? God's opposed to the proud, it says, and he exalts the humble in James. <clears throat> so that was the second one, and how was that dealt with? Pretty severely, wasn't it? You guys can answer, by the way. We're in a smaller setting, and I like that, right? But, this, but what, how did God deal with Ananias and Sapphira? Folks, this is the New Testament. God here shows what? He deals with sin in the church, and he protects his church, the purity of the church, very severely here. He killed them. We can't hide that. Don't try to cover that from your text, you guys. That's there for us to understand. And this is not the only time in the New, New Testament. Everyone says, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath. He's a God of grace in the New Testament. No, he's not. He's a God of grace in the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. And he's a God of wrath in the New Testament. It's all over. You want to see it really clearly, read uh, the Olivet Discourse, <laughs> Matthew, end of Matthew. Read Revelation. And there's other clear places, but where else did God discipline believers to the point of killing them? Once a month we read about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we read about that what I received I delivered to you, that when Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the cup. Well, right after that, Paul has to warn the Corinthians and exhort them, you guys, you need to examine yourselves before you get together. To eat, the, you know, celebrate the love feast and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some of you are getting drunk, and some of you are not say, leaving anything for the poor. You're showing, and so some of you, it says that God has made ill, and some even have gone to sleep. And what does that mean? What was our euphemism for? Death. God had disciplined them to the point of death. So, I mean, again, this is not to hammer, but we have to realize that God cares about the purity of his church. Right? So that's what, that was the second thing. That was the second attack on a fledgling church. And these are snapshots of what's happening because this is months of going on and we just get four snapshots of what's happening in this early church before we start changing focus a little bit. And that'll start next week. All right? But what was the, what was the, third, the third attack? Was not ex, it was not internal. So we had external persecution. Then we had the, the internal Ananias and Sapphira, and then we had external persecution again. But this time, it says that Caiaphas, the high priest, was really angry. <laughs> so it wasn't just, it got a, they got the attention of the Sadducees, kind of the ruling class in some of these people who were annoyed. Now the high priest is, hey, they didn't listen to our charge before, and here they are preaching on the Temple Mount again. Now you guys understand, they have been imprisoned, 
and they're going back anyways to the Temple Mount. So they imprison all the apostles. That's what we looked at last time. All the apostles get imprisoned, all right? But then what happens that night? An earthquake and an angel gets, gets them out, right? And so where do they go? Right back to the Temple Mount. <laughs> and the temple, it's like Keystone Cops when you see the temple guard and the priest trying to find out where do they go? Oh, they're out there teaching again. Talk about civil disobedience, right? But they said, hey, we have to preach. What we've seen and heard, we're going to preach. But then we see that, you know, even in the midst of this persecution, we have an intervention by, unlikely, by an unlikely person, Gamaliel, who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, hey, if this is of God, we better not get in its way or we'll lose. And he was right, right? But then we, but we see that at the end of that, what happened each time? To these, so far to the three threats. Each time, the church is strengthened and the witness grows greater. So what Satan's, his, his strategy to try to go after the church, external persecution, I want to scare them to death. Uh, the fear of God was greater, right? And, and then when there's internal, oh, we'll try to cause division. No, God took care of that again too. So he takes the devil's plans and turns it on its head and the church grows, we have another situation that happens, and that's what we're looking at tonight. And I call this part four of the attacks on the early church, because these are snapshots for us to understand. This is a young church. They are vulnerable. It's a growing church. We understand they are vulnerable to attacks. So this is what we're going to look at now. Okay, so here we are. That's, that's all to set the stage, and we read into Acts 6, and we'll read the first seven verses. <clears throat> Now in these days, referring to the early church, chapter 3 through 6 is during that early time period, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said, what the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose uh, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and of Philip, uh, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You're like, well, Okay, this passage, I've read this before, but how is this a challenge to the early church? Well, follow along with me, because it was. It was an attack from within the church, and it's actually very relevant today. There is a division in the body. Cultural differences leading to prejudice and bias that they brought in from their pre-Christian days into the church. Oh, we're a pretty divided country right now, but you know a lot of churches are divided too. So this has some really timely things, but it's not mainly about division. It's also mainly about the priority of leadership 
and what needs to be the main goals and to the delegation of, of spreading out the load, the workload in the church. So there's a lot of things in here that should teach us and challenge us. All right, so I think it's great for us to understand. But as far as, uh, you know, one, one of the things that, when I think about what's a good introduction to this, there's several things we can talk about, of course, of our current situation. But when it comes to the church and how do you organize ministry, right? Because when you have 20 people and you're trying to figure out who does what, that's not that hard to do, is it? You can't do 50 ministries, you got 20 people, and then you figure out, you know, you take what you have and you just go from there, you keep, keep things pretty simple. But when you have 20,000 people, 20,000 people who you're not only trying to teach and shepherd, you're also trying to help provide for needs. Remember, the, the context is that many of these Christians were not just from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when they heard that message. They were Jews who had come from around the world for Pentecost because that was one of the three great feasts that male Jews were commanded to return to Jerusalem for. So these converts were not just locals. They were from around the, around the known world, and they became Christians, and they had, what were they going to do? They were going to try to stick around and learn. And so how are they going to be taken care of? Because if they're just learning, they need to be there for some period of time. And so there's needs. And don't forget, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get you just got baptized at the Temple Mount. You're in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, the mikvahs there, we talked about that. But you just are confessing that Jesus is Yahweh. What do you think would happen in your family if you confess that, oh, that Jesus of Nazareth, oh, he's God? What do you think would happen in your family if they didn't believe in Jesus? What would they do to you? Most likely kick you out, right? So in, and we're going to see persecution gets more severe as time goes on. But so you get kicked out of your home. What do you do now? Who's going to help you? We talked about it this morning. Lance says, who's your family? Your blood family has kicked you out, but your church is your family. So you've got to remember, this is a tumultuous time, and they're trying to figure out ministry. But here's the deal. When we start trying to talk about organizing ministry, we bring in our own baggage today, too. Because we work for organizations. We've been part of the PTA, maybe, or the local soccer club, and they're, you know, they have volunteers for this or that, or you work for a, a brokerage firm, and you're the vice president, and you have your ways of how you organize your, your business. And guess what we bring into the church? Here's how we do business. And that's what we, we have to remember, that we, this is not a business, the church is not. Are there business facets to it? Well, sure, we, got, we take in tithes, we got to figure that out. Oh, wait, that's what the early church had to figure out, too. They were taking in money, and how do you distribute it? But it's also an organism. It's an organism. It's a body. It's a family. It's a spiritual entity. And so we need to make sure that we are organizing and exhibiting the characteristics of how God wants us to run this family. And so this passage really helps us. It's another one of those things where I say we have to take our glasses and put on God's glasses, and, and sometimes we have to take, like, my glasses get pretty dirty. I'm out there doing stuff all the time, touching them, and I have to clean my glasses. And passages, God's word helps us clean our glasses so we can start seeing clearly. And this is one of those, to help us see 
how God wants us to operate as his body, to see the kind of leaders we should be looking for, to see how the kind of servant I need to be, to see the characteristics and the things that should be important to the church. The issue here that they're dealing with, the care of widows. What does James say pure religion is? To care for orphans and widows. That's not at the top of our list, is it, when we think of what is the purpose of the church, right? But it is a big issue here, and it, it's one of those things that we need to re-examine. Wait, how, are we doing well with that? What should we think about? So again, these are all things. There's so many things, like, <laughs> like I love what Lance said this morning where he said, it's only two verses. You know, he did the two verses out of Thessalonians, but they're what with meaning? He said they're pregnant with meaning. And that's just it about God's word is that I could do probably two or three sermons just on this passage. So this, I try to do more of a survey style. So bear with me, we're going to cover seven verses tonight. But there's things that we need to be challenged by and think through and, and, and see what, what we need to change in ourselves. So <clears throat> we always want to ask that. What, are, what, is, what of man's wisdom is God confronting here? What are things that I've been living by that needs, that I need to confront? All right. So again, this, this, the context is there's been huge growth in the early church, but there's danger now. More people means more sin, <laughs> more imperfection, more personalities, more agendas. And that's good for us to see and see how it was dealt with by God through his, his, the leaders he chose. So let's, let's get, dig into this a little bit more now. And, and the first part is we're looking in verse 1. It says, we're looking at the growing yet vulnerable church. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing number, this is a snapshot of that incredible just explosion of the gospel. And, it, and we see it's another serious challenge that, that they were facing. And we have to remember, just like us, folks, look at me. They are just like us. They are just like us, indwelt by the Spirit, have all sorts of things that they need to be changed in. Their thinking, their living, their perspective. They're just like us. So we have to see that these imperfect people, and there's another attack here foiled by God and turned for good. So with these large numbers of people contrasting cultures, trouble was brewing. <laughs> in those days, the growing church, there's trouble brewing. The 12 apostles we find, they can't meet everyone's needs. And we find out they shouldn't. It's not up to them. And so what we're finding out from the apostles, the apostles are learning. We see that throughout Acts. They're learning and growing. They didn't know everything. Just because they spent six weeks with the risen Lord, which was, would have been, what a seminary. After three years of missing the point, all of a sudden for six weeks you get the point. Call comes together, but then they have a long way to go. And how do you organize the Israel background of how to organize bodies? You know, Israel. God had given structure to Israel. Right? We'll see that they appointed seven. Seven, we'll see that later, seven of these men. Well, that looks like it comes from the Jewish uh, synagogue perhaps. Their, their culture, so they organized things. They had things that God had given them in their past, all right? But, but they're learning. They're trying to figure this out, all right? And, and, but in the midst of this, we need to understand that there's disunity, 
It says that there's grumbling and complaining, and that should, if you're a Jew, when you see this in your scriptures, what should it draw you to? Who grumbled and complained that God was really ticked with? Huh? Okay, Korah, but you, you actually go bigger than that. You're in the right time period. It's in the Exodus. The wanderings, they were constantly grumbling and complaining. God said at one point, you've tested me ten times. That's it. <laughs> right? So this should draw us to that. And that's actually a great thing because there was a point during the Exodus wanderings where Moses had to do a similar thing. You know that story? Jethro, his father-in-law. Hey, Moses, you got about two million people here. And you're trying to be the judge for all of them. Hey, get some of wise men, appoint 70 elders. And let them take care of some of the cases and the severe ones that come to you. Again, learning and growing. So we have some history here, right? Just to keep us thinking through that. But again, it's an attack. It's a potential danger to the early church that would destroy the vitality and the unity of the body and its witness to the community. Because remember, remember, John, or in, in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, remember, he said this two different times, especially in verses 20 through 24. He said, Father, just as you and I are one, may they, talking about his fathers, be one, so that the world would know that you sent me. Their unity was a witness to the deity and mission of Christ. Do you get that? Our witness and how we treat each other is itself. Uh, 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 evidence of the reality of who Jesus is. Do you get that? That's why unity is one of the critical things we have to work on. Doing our best to seek out when there needs to be peace brought in and reconciliation constantly. That's just something leaders are supposed to be aware of and the body is supposed to be passionate about themselves. So here we have we have a potential destruction of the early church and its witness. So this is important. That's why it's in here. It's not just, oh, they had to learn something. Isn't that great? No, it's something we have to understand, the severity of what was happening here. And we see, if you look at my outline, point two, it says, we see the people and their prejudice, right? Hebrews versus Hellenists. It was a divided body. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Again, it, the critical issue was the care for the needy, especially for widows, right? But it's, it's dangerous because it's two groups within the body. Who are the Hebrews? If you don't know, it's okay. It's my role, and I'll tell you. But Okay, so the Jews, but in this context, the, the early church was made up only of Jews. So what are the Hebrews and Hellenists then? Oh, good question. I'm glad you asked me. I'll tell you. <laughs> Okay, good. So you got the Hebrews, they're the ones who were native-born Israelis, Jews, who lived near Jerusalem probably, or even if they're just in the land. So they're, they're, they're called the Hebrews. They're, they're Aramaic-speaking. They could probably also speak Greek. It was the trade language, but their primary language was not Greek. Those who lived outside of Israel and who spoke Greek, who had come, they were called the Hellenists. What is, what's Hellenism? It, well, Gentiles, especially, yeah, Greek culture, that was the pervasive culture bought by Alexander the Great, right, way back. But it was the, it was the Gentile culture that 
these Jews had lived in, and so they were probably they had they probably lived in the patterns and in customs of these Gentile you know countries they lived in. Doesn't mean they were sinful, but there was prejudice. The Hebrews thought they're unclean; they're compromisers. They're not true Jews. And I'm talking about pre-Christ. This was there was bias. Did you know in Jerusalem there was a synagogue for the Israeli Jews and a synagogue, I say Israeli, but the Jews from Israel, and there's a synagogue for Hellenistic Jews. They were at at war with each other. This is non-Christian Jews. So this bias, they're they're bringing this into the church. And and the and the Hellenists would see the Hebraic Jews, right? The ones, oh, they're self-righteous and legalistic. Right? They're people like us. How many of you were in some kind of clique? in high school or junior high. We all had, okay, click is just your group of friends, and you have a group of friends because they're more like you. <laughs> but what tends to happen because we're sinful creatures, and I'm looking at a bunch of them, even the little ones over there, we're all born in sin, right? So we're good at forming our boundaries, who's in, who's out, right? So they're doing it here, and though they're saved, they brought it into the church, right? So again, and they're just like us. Do we have divisions in our body at different times? I wouldn't say yes, because we're a bunch of sinners, right? But you know what? We're changing and growing. And so there's hope, right? So here we have a situation for them to change and grow. Sanctification, you get to see it here. So we have, we have the division in the body, and they're bringing baggage into the church, and it's ripe for conflict. And again, it's about the daily distribution. And what that is, is that just draws us back to Acts chapter 2. After Pentecost, the church was together, and it says that they were taking care of each other's needs. And people in Acts 4 were bringing money. They were selling their property and, and bringing investments and giving it to the apostles, and the apostles would distribute it. But now, <laughs> with 20,000 people, it means there's a lot of money, but there's also a lot of need and a lot of people who have those needs. So the apostles are now starting to get overwhelmed, right? There's, there's a complaint now. Uh, the people who are getting served first are what? The locals. And a complaint, a murmuring is brought up against, hey, what's going on here? They're getting it and, and our widows aren't being taken care of. And by the way, that's a serious charge. This, where I brought up pure religion, that's out of James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion is this, that you take care of the widows and the orphans. But that actually has Old Testament precedent. In Exodus, it says you are to care for the widows. That is an absolute charge to Israel. You care for the widows. You care for the orphans. Why? They didn't have welfare. Their welfare was built into the very community. You care for the widows and orphans. Uh, widows were helpless because back then, there, like I said, there was no uh, welfare system. Widows, the way that you were cared for as you got older is you had kids who took care of you. There weren't old people homes. They, you, you lived in, with your, your kids and their families, and you died there. Talk about, that, talk about what's missing from our culture, right? They care for the elderly in one sense. We, we kind of push them away. Where in many cultures, grandma and great-grandma and grandpa are there in the home, and guess where they die? In the home. But that's normal. Here, we kind of push it away. <laughs> like, oh, we don't want to talk about it. You know what? Ecclesiastes says it's better to be in the house of, a morn in a, of mourning than in a house of laughter. 
in a house where someone has died because what does it do? Makes you think about the real things of life. We all face eternity. We all have an end date, right? An expiration date. That's not bad. Because what do we have to look forward to? Oh, eternity with the Lord, right? But all that being said, is that, that it's so, it, this, this idea of the widows being taken care of was not just, they weren't just looking for an issue to bring up. That was a serious issue. Our widows, those of the Hellenistic background, are not being cared for. And that's a charge against the church, the ministry and the witness of the church. Because remember, the church is in Jerusalem. These are Jewish Christians. And the Jews around them, if they saw that widows weren't being taken care of, what would they think? Uh, you're not, you don't believe in God Yahweh because he says you take care of widows. So don't, this is a serious charge that's being brought up. It's a serious need that needs to be taken care of. So we just see that there's division brewing and, and they are commanded to preserve the unity, to be diligent to preserve the unity. Uh, but what are the key ingredients? What is the one, especially in Philippians, there's a highlight. What's the key ingredient to unity in a, or, yeah, to unity in a church? So love, but the key thing, yes, it's a form of humility, right? Humility. So we have to see how is that going to be brought into this situation, right? And again, remember, Satan, what he couldn't break apart by external persecution, he's now going to try to bring division and, and destroy the church through this. But again, talk about relevant. <laughs> what Please tell me you agree that we're in a very divided country. And I have seen, oh my goodness, I mean, everyone knows about the, the dangers of social media, but I have seen Christians absolutely attacking each other, sometimes even worse than I see non-Christians speaking. Whoa, you guys. I had a friend who just went on a rant the other day, and I'm like, oh, you've got to tone that down. Not that we can't have our opinions, but, but our opinions, it's not just what our opinions are, it's how we express them. But there's division, right? So this is a, something for us to... Uh, you know, pay attention to. <laughs> Divided over politics, pandemic responses, social justice, you name it. So what do, what do they do, right? So that's the situation, and then we see the apostles and their discernment, how they see. And, and we're going to see that they, they, come up, they have to figure out the priorities of what they're supposed to do and, and then figure out how to minister to their body. So in verse 2, verses 2 through 4 now. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. How many was that again? Talk about, talk about, yeah, the full, so there's 12 disciples and they call a big family meeting. How many is that? Potentially 20,000. At least 10,000. That's a big meeting. All right, so they're calling, okay, you guys, this is a big issue. We got to deal with it up front. Here, let's take care of this. Count, what was that? Summon the full number. Uh -huh. The full number. Mm-hmm. It, it, and they said this, it is not right, it's not appropriate, this is not the right thing, that we, meaning the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, were they demeaning the daily distribution and actually were they demeaning it? No, they're talking about God's appointed role for them and what was getting in the way of their role. They got their hands dirty. I mean, it says that they were distributing the money in Acts chapter 2. It's just now that, that job was getting so big, they weren't doing what their first job was supposed to be. We'll talk about that. Therefore, brothers, to figure out how to deal with this situation, therefore, family, here's what you need to do. Pick out from among you seven men 
of good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit. They've given evidence that they, they walk in God's ways. They pursue holiness. They, they show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. That's what full of the Spirit means. And of wisdom. Practically making decisions, applying God's principles to a situation to figure out what is the best and most God-honoring decision you can make given your, what you know. Okay, so these are, that's what they're looking for. Pick men who look like that, whom we will appoint to this duty. You look around, and then we will give them the authority. Into the ministry of the world. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Oh, it's pretty good. Talk about a job description. They, had, they were saying, we've got to be focused here. So, first of all, the apostles and their leadership, and I bring this up out of verse 2, because notice, first of all, they're the 12, right? So they have that official. They're a unique group of people in all of time. There is not another the 12 in the Christian church. There's some denominations that say they're the new apostles. And, no, uh-uh. the 12, they're, they're unique, all right? Christ chose them to do what? What did, what did Christ choose them to do as far as the church? Be the foundation. Christ is the chief cornerstone, but they are the foundation. And how do you lay a foundation? They got to teach about Jesus. Jesus, what he, who he was, what he did, and what he taught. They, they are the eyewitnesses, the official authoritative ones to do and, and say what Christ wanted them to do. So they have a very unique role. And that we have to, import, we have to remember that there. Again, it's a full number. They gathered everybody. This was so important they had to address it because the unity of the body and the witness of the church was at stake here. Right? They, they, had, to, they had to make sure that this issue was dealt with and that, and that their priority of teaching about the new covenant and how it plays out in real life. Because remember, we had the Old, Te- Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. But now we have the new covenant that was promised, and Jesus had to reteach them, remember? Just like on the, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, the discouraged ones, he had to open up the scriptures to them again to re-explain. So what he, for six weeks after his resurrection, he was doing the same thing, to help open their eyes. Well, the rest of the church now needed this, so they could lay a proper foundation. Because our church, the church, is not built on good acts. It's first built on the truth of who Jesus is and what we need to know about God that should lead to what? Good acts, good deeds, right? So that's, we can't separate them, but the first thing that has to come is the truth. And that's what they had to stay fixed to. And the, and the body need to realize, wait a second, our witness is going to get in the way of what we're trying to proclaim. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God. Right? They, they knew what their focus was. And again, this wasn't an exclusive club that they bought their way into. These were official men chosen by Jesus to lay the foundation, uniquely chosen and called. Right? And again, but what they bring up is that priorities are key. Priorities for the leadership here, and it becomes a prototype for later, for the church later, as the church grows. We see Paul, when he goes planting churches, what did it say that he did? He went, he talked to Titus. Hey, when I left you in Crete, Titus 1, 5 through, 5 through 9, says, I left you in Crete because after we evangelized, I wanted you to organize the church and do what? How did you organize the church? Appoint elders. 
And then he lays out the job description of elders. And then he says, I also want deacons. What were deacons supposed to do? Right? We'll get to that in a little bit. But again, there's organization that needs to happen, but there's priorities that need to be established. And he says, it's not right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Right? They were, again, they were involved in hands-on ministry at first, but then they realized, wait a second, <laughs> we need to change how this plays out. But the goal here is that, remember, they were not in some ivory tower somewhere. They got their hands dirty, right? And that should always be the case is that, that elders get their hands dirty. I'm not saying go build, build a house, right? Maybe that's not bad. But getting hands dirty means getting involved in the messy things of, of relationships and counseling. And, and yeah, sometimes putting, you know, hand to shovel when you need to help out with the church work project, right? So this isn't the, the, uh, the, <laughs> the great dividing line saying, look, elders and pastors cannot be involved in any hands-on ministry. You need to stick to study and to teaching. No, right? It doesn't mean that you have to have priorities, but it doesn't mean you cross over, okay? So all that's, that's just there. But again, the, the needs were getting too big, and then they realized, okay, we have to adjust something here. Did, did Jesus tell them this, by the way? Did Jesus appear to them and say, hey, you guys, you're getting, it's getting too big. You need to take care of things. No, it doesn't say that. It says that the situation happened, and there was a problem, and they had to use their wisdom to discern it. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Jesus, who has been speaking through the Spirit very clearly at different times, doesn't hear. So the apostles were learning how to, t it, and who knows how long this was happening before they recognized, uh-oh, we need to change things. Just think that's interesting. Maybe something to think about. But again, again, we, I talk about this when I write my all-church emails to you guys. When we have to change how we do ministry in the church, we say, thank you for your prayers. We're just trying to do our best using our wisdom of this collected group of men to figure out how we can best shepherd through these changing times. And these are unusual times, right? <laughs> it's so frustrating at times, like, oh my goodness, it's changing again. <laughs> what do we do now? And, and you all have been very gracious, so please hear that. But that's, I get great comfort seeing uh, even the apostles having to learn and figure things out. It's great. This is a real book. It's one of those testimonies to me that this is not made up. Because you see real people dealing with real situations. And we've got a very patient God, don't we? <laughs> Thank you for his mercy and patience. So, but the needs are getting great. Um, and again, this idea of delegation, I've brought up a couple. But Moses, he had to do it in Exodus. Jesus, by the way, did you know that he had to delegate? Yeah, he picked his disciples. But did you know that he said, I have to go so that I can send the Spirit to you? When Jesus Voluntary, voluntarily did not use all of his rights, his prerogatives as, remember, he didn't cease to, uh, to be God, eternal God, when he was here on earth. But he voluntarily chose not to use all of his omniscience at times, all of his glory. It had to be, you know, he, he voluntarily held, you know, held that under wraps for a time. So he said, hey, I need to go so that I can send who? The Spirit. Because the Spirit is not going to be in just one body. He can be everywhere. When you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, did the Holy Spirit just reside in you and not you at that time? Or, see what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit indwells each one of us. So Jesus says, I have to go. So I can send this. He delegated. He sent out, the, even the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
the Spirit sent out, the Nicene Creed says that, sent the Spirit sent by the Son. Paul did it too. I talked about that earlier. He appointed elders. He had to delegate authority. It's a great picture, too, of what leadership is. They're not micromanagers. They're not, I've got to control everything. I've got to be the person. <laughs> but they're also not passive here either. They, they get involved and they do the right thing, but they're learning and growing. So that should give hope to us too, right? We don't have to know it all at once and we can learn. We all learn at different paces, but this is just a great example. So they see the need and they say, look, we, we, it's not right that we are dragged from our priority. Therefore, brothers, we see that they, they have direction in, in uh, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit, of the spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. See, they were under the direction of Scripture, the mandate to be preachers and teachers. They understood that. But they also understood the mandate for the unity of the body. They're under that direction from Scripture. And they're under the mandate to care for the widows. These are all key things. So understanding the best way to do this is we need to pass on the authority. So they were men under direction. And then they were passing on that direction to the church. And, and when they asked the church to look around, what does that help the church do? Use their own discernment. What else? Okay, well, yeah, after the end of this, it could lead to that. But folks, it's buy they're getting buy-in. They're not just sitting back saying, okay, uh, okay, apostles, you got it all. Come on, you got to do it all for us. They're giving, hey, they're giving you the ability. The, now the body has the ability to, he's saying, hey, appoint men. Choose, choose not appointment, but choose men from among you. What does that mean? Well, look around. Who are the guys you respect who are, who are doing it? They're, they get to participate in this. And then the appointing, the, the official affirming will come from the apostles, but it's buy-in. It's saying, yeah, let's participate in this together. It's just, it's a wonderful picture. And again, this, some people say this is the first example of deacons. It, it, it actually, you can't go that far, but it sure certainly is a model for it. Um, we, we'll get into that a little bit more, but not much, but... It just, it's just seeing that the God is, is helping the church learn to delegate and learn to share the load, to bring more people into the ministry. And it's not just, we, this isn't just for, hey, if you're a leader, this is a passage for you. There's also for every Christian. You should be challenged by this. The church has needs, both in teaching and discipling, certainly, but also on the care side and compassion side, to get hands-on. I went and prayed with a, a gal just uh, yesterday whose sister is going through some severe trials. And, and this gal had been watching and stayed up for two nights straight. She had no one to help her. And she was struggling. And, and I didn't know about that till later. But so I went and prayed with her. But now she's, you know, she's got some help. But she's going to reach out to the church to see if anyone will come sit with her sister so she can sleep. And she's a Christian. Her sister's a Christian. They have non-Christian workers coming in. Is it a potentially a chance to have a witness? Absolutely. But again, so there's, and I can't do that. <laughs> I, can, I can only be at one place at one time. It's just, you see that there's needs? And so we should all be challenged that there's needs that spring up in the body that are not supposed to be answered by the teachers. We'll talk about that some more later. So just keep, keep thinking through this because this applies to us very, in very big ways. So there's a need 
in the church for compassion. We can't just be a church that's known for being a good teaching church. That has to be there, but that's only part of the story. We have got to be just like the early church and just like all the one another's, those are all commands, bear one another's burdens, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If someone has a need, fill it. If you say, go and be warmed and, and, and take care of it, but they have a need and you don't do it, that's not true love, First John. I mean, just go throughout the scriptures. We need to be a church. There's a need for compassion. By the way, what does God characterize himself as? Compassionate. So as God is, should, shouldn't we be? We, we want we, Lord, please help us with our needs, right? In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We have needs for sustenance. Well, if we're asking him and he's providing for us, aren't we supposed to imitate him if someone else has need? Yeah, that's supposed to be a characteristic of the church. And it, and it was the character of the church from the very beginning. Acts 2, I keep bringing it up, Acts 2.42. They took care of real needs. They were a compassionate, caring church. And I've already brought this, and that's an Old Testament precedence. It's not new to the New, Te to the new Covenant. And when there's, uh, you know, a need for compassion in the church, it means that there's a need for ministers. And when I say minister, that title is not a title for pastor. That word, minister, diakonia, diakonos, is actually, if you turn with me just real quickly to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go to Ephesians chapter 4. I know you know this passage, and I've, I've said it before, but it's worth going to again. Ephesians chapter 4, go to verse 11. You there yet? Joel, you there? Yeah. <laughs> I said that online, everyone knows. And hi, Brad King, by the way. Karen said to say hi. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10. He who, dis I'm sorry, verse 11. And he, meaning Jesus, gave to the church apostles, that's who we're looking at here now, the prophets also during this time period as God's word is being revealed, the evangelists, church planters, to get the word out, and the shepherds and teachers, all right? That's, that's your elders and those who teach in the church. So he gave offices. But to do what? To equip the saints... For what? For the work of service, or the work of ministry. That's the word, diakonia, diakonos. So who are the ministers of the church? Y'all, all y'all. <laughs> I'm looking at the ministers. My role as one of the pastors is to be an equipper. And yes, I got to get my hands dirty too, and I love doing that. But the ministers, the ones who are there to serve, to meet and carry out the compassion, it's not... The elders, it's not primarily, it's, it's all of us. There's a need for ministers who exhibit this kind of character. We're called to compassion. We're called to, to meet practical needs. And, 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 and certainly, if someone's going to lead a ministry that's devoted, like let's say we have a ministry to the widows and shut-ins, the person who leads it has to have godly character. Certainly. I mean, that's, that's commanded in, in Titus as well. You know, we start looking at deacons and also in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3. They need to be people with good reputation, godly character, full of the Spirit. They exhibit a life that's changing and growing, and they follow after God and pursue holiness. They're an example to follow. 
and full of wisdom, where you see them making practically good decisions. They don't have to be perfect, but they exhibit wisdom, right? So those are the kind of characters. They're energetic is another way. That's their habit is they're energetic. But again, we're, talking, we're not just talking about leaders here. We're also talking about all Christians. We're supposed to be energetic and serving. It doesn't mean you have to do what I do. It doesn't mean you have to do what Joel does. I could never do your job, Joel. Music, so I don't sing next to that microphone. <laughs> but I couldn't do what Sean does with the, back there in the IT. But each one of us uses our gifts, right? Some of you are great at swinging a hammer. I, I wish I had that skill. I tried it when I was just out of college. When we were engaged, I worked for a construction company. I was grunt labor. I was terrible. I lasted about three months. They, they didn't fire me. I was like, I, I got to go back to seminary. <laughs> I, I can carry stuff, but I have no skill. I can destroy. Oh, my goodness, I can destroy. But I cannot build. Yeah, I break things all the time, including my body. <laughs> But, but, okay, I have to get back to this, I'm sorry. But the kind of, of, kind of people who we should all be as far as serving the body is energetic. There should be evidence that God is working in us and, and that we, would, we want to be an example. Paul said that, right? Yeah, hey, follow me as I follow the Lord, right? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. So, so that's the kind of people that should be leading these ministries, but at the same time, it should be the people that we're trying to be as well. Right? So there's a great need for compassion, but there's a great need for people who will meet those needs that need to be filled. Again, I'm going to do a real quiet, quick thing on says when it says filled with the Spirit, because in our culture, the church culture, that's been taken all over the place. Being filled with the Spirit, you know what that means? First of all, when you become a Christian, you are indwelt by the Spirit. Every Christian is, it says. At the moment of conversion, you have the Spirit who indwells you permanently because he's called the guarantee or the stamp, the key lights of picture of the king's stamp of authenticity and guarantee that you're saved. So you're indwelt the moment of conversion. And then when you, you can get baptized for specific situations, right? 518, spirit to do work. But here's the deal, being filled with the spirit in Ephesians 518, and here talking in Acts, it means controlled as you endeavor to follow Christ and obey him, and as you, and how do you know to obey him? You read his word. There's a passage, I've already said Ephesians 5.18, it says don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. But if you look at the, the passage that is an exact equal, it's a parallel passage in Colossians 3.16. So everyone turn to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, put your finger there and turn two books over to Colossians 3.16. So Ephesians 5.18, and I'll just read into part of 19. Okay, ready? Here we go. Everyone got your finger in Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16? We'll start in Ephesians 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, drunkenness. But be filled with the Spirit. Don't be out of control, but be controlled by God's Spirit, not the Spirit's, right? And then here we go. Listen to this. Address, this is the characteristics of being controlled by the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another. We'll stop there. Now go to Colossians 3. 16. 
and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay, that's not the same. Why are you saying this is a parallel passage, Chris? Listen to the next. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Doesn't that sound familiar? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Oh, doesn't that sound familiar? So it's a parallel passage. So what's telling us here is to be filled with the Spirit is to be a the, the, who's richly indwelt by the Word of Christ. What is the Word of Christ? Scripture. Richly indwelt means you're studying it to know it, you're meditating on it so that you can apply it to your daily choices. That's being filled with the Spirit. So that's, there's nothing ethereal about this where you get a second blessing where you get overwhelmed by the Spirit and you're out of control. It's, when he's saying look for people who are filled with the Spirit, it's who are literally, who obey God's Word regularly, consistently. They're pursuing holiness. They're people who actually sing when it's time to sing, right? I love what Lance said this morning about singing. We need to be together to sing because we're not just singing words on a screen up to God. We're also singing to each other. It is. We sing God's truth. And, man, some of my favorite times of singing are when we are just singing out loud so hard because we just can't contain our joy. I saw you, Bruce. You're like this in that song. I love that because I was feeling the same thing. Music gets to our affections and draws us in a way that just the plain spoken word doesn't quite do. The music, God has a role for it. But a person who's filled with the Spirit is somebody who loves God's word and wants to obey it. And when it's time to sing, we're singing. Because we know who our audience is and we know we get to sing with. Right? Singing praises to our king. So that's, that's just a little side note there about you know, what it means to be filled with. It means it's a person who loves, loves God and loves his word and wants to obey him. In the, in the nitty-gritty, the, the everyday decisions. And there you go. I could talk more about the fruit of the Spirit, but we'll just stick to that. So we have the, the apostles. You know, we have the apostles and their, uh, under B there, um, in their direction. They're under the direction of Scripture, so they give direction to the body, right? And here's the direction. Look for men, you know, who will, who will be the ones who can help meet this need. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now, but in verse 4, they, they clarified their priorities, the apostles and their priorities. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Their focus, a shepherd's focus, is supplication to God. That's the vertical. And it's to teach the word. It's horizontal. It's very clear and it's very important, the priority of prayer. Matter of fact, we'll be done here in about... Oh, 10 minutes, and then we're going to have about 10 minutes of corporate prayer. But we are going to shut off the online, and then we're just going to pray out loud. We'll take turns. You know, you don't have to be doing it in any order. But we're going to pray for the church because God commands prayer. What does prayer do for us? It drives us to our needs, and it makes us say, God, I need you. And we do that individually, right? Jesus, do it hey, in your prayer closet, meaning do it in private, but do it in a way that you're actually talking to God. But it drives us to our, to our knees and saying, look, I can't do it. I'm not sufficient. And when we do corporate prayer, it's a way of saying we're not sufficient. We have resources here at this church, but it doesn't mean we can do it all. Right? God is the one who can do it. He wants us to be dependent. I love it when he would tell Israel, don't count your army. Don't count how many chariots or horses you have. 
I don't care if a million come against and you only have 10,000, I can take them. Think about all the incidents in, Israel, in Israel's history where they, they didn't trust God because they didn't have enough men. And God's like, man, do I have to do this all over again? Hey, Gideon, come on. <laughs> 30 versus over 100,000. God wants us to be dependent because then he shows us how glorious he is. In our weakness, he is strong. So he makes us weak at times, and that's good. But prayer is that act of us saying, I need you, Lord. I need you. I need you. We're on our knees, dependent, persistent, energetic. I love how uh, uh, John Stott, he's a great commentary on the, on the book of Acts. But he says this about, about the ministry of prayer and the word. He says, they form a natural couple, a natural team. Since the ministry of the word without prayer that the spirit will water the seed is unlikely to bear fruit. Prayer, I'm just on the way over here. I was praying, God, I just pray that when I preach, it's not about me displaying what I know. It's I, I, I pray that you would use this word to change us, to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us. But I need his prayer. I mean, I, could, I, I spend a lot of time doing my outline and stuff and bringing in quotes, and I'm not t- showing you everything I got here. Lance will tell you the same. But that's all pointless if I'm not asking God to bless this, even in my preparation, in my, even before I start. Because his, he's the one who's the power behind this. Not, not me and my eloquence. <laughs> not that I have much. It's God and his power. And so prayer has got to be part of the, the very fabric of this church. And it was part, they recognized it had to be part of our very ministry. These are the apostles who'd been chosen. Had spent time with the risen Lord. And yet they said, no, we need prayer. We do too. And we have to be in the word. Folks, I tell you, we wake up every day in a culture that is bent against God and his ways. And we listen to the radio, we watch TV, we're in the workplace where we hear man's wisdom. That's why we have to be in the word because that's what renews our thinking. That's how it changes and transforms us. We need to be in the word. And I, when I say that, I start feeling guilty myself because I'm not in it enough either. But we need to. We, with the air we breathe is anti-God. We're in a world system bent against God. I'm not talking about who's in the White House now or anything like that. I'm just saying that's the normal course of life. We need to be in the Word. So we had to let teachers teach because we had to let them teach. We need to be under the teaching of the Word. When Lance preaches, I'm under his teaching. It's not because of Lance, but because of the Word he's preaching. We need to be under the Word so that it can transform us because it's authoritative over us because of the God who's behind it, right? And again, when they said this, they're not denigrating what's called the, the ministry of hands or whatever, right? We've got the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. I, I just take that from 1 Peter 4. Listen to this. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, each Christian has a gift or gifts. You've got talent, personality, energy levels, opportunities, you bring a history of doing things, but we each have spirit-empowered abilities to build up the body, specifically to build up the church, all right? So he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. It's for the building up. As good stewards of God's varied grace, meaning uh, I have the gift of teaching, some degree of it, 
Lance has a different degree of it because the Spirit decided to give him a different degree than me. And that's the same across the board. Be who you are and let the Spirit use you the way he wants to. But get to it. Right? It's not wait till you've got a seminary degree or you've been a Christian 20 years and then you can start services. Use it as good stewards. Whoever speaks has a speaking type as one who speaks the oracles of God. When, you, when I teach, I'm not here to say, look, this is what Chris says. This is what God says. So we got to do it. Right? So this is the oracles of God. If you disagree with me, uh, if you're able to state my opinion, okay, that's okay. But when I'm talking about scripture and I'm laying it out clearly, you got a problem with God. It's God's word, right? It's authoritative. So if you're, if you're not going to obey it, you got to repent. I'll tell you that straight up. Okay? So whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So is there any lower level of Christian here? Oh, if you've got a speaking gift, oh, you're higher up. No, if you've got a serving gift, you've got the strength that God supplies, and he's given it to you on purpose to fulfill that role. Read uh, Romans 12. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says the body needs every single part. If you're not serving the body, one, you're not getting blessed because you're not a part of the body the way you're supposed to, but we're hurting because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So we're supposed to be involved. And the Spirit's given each one of us a gift. We need people to do it. Both are necessary. Both serving and speaking gifts are necessary. So, again, they're not denigrating the serving gifts. It was critical. It was dividing the body. It had to be taken care of, and they saw that. They just couldn't be the ones to do it. Let me read you this quote. It is surely deliberate that the work of the twelve and the work of the seven are, in, are, are alike, both in the Greek, called diakonia. They're both called ministry. The ministry of the apostles and the ministry of the, of the seven who are going to be taken care of. They are both called that. The former is the ministry of the word in verse 4, or pastoral work. The latter is the ministry of tables or social work in verse 2. Neither ministry is superior to the other. On the contrary, both are Christian ministries, that is, ways of serving God and his people. Both require spiritual people full of spirit to exercise them. Isn't that cool? If you've got a gift where you are in charge of some hands-on type of ministry, you're in the nursery and that's what you are doing, is that just as valuable in God's eyes? Everyone say yes immediately. <laughs> yes! I love, we have a friend who's a faithful servant for years. She worked, and she's now in her 60s, Carolyn uh, Fern, maybe even older. She has worked in the nursery this, for years, 40 years, because she says, I want young moms to be able to sit in that and in the, in the, to hear the word of God, to sing God's praises, knowing that someone loves their child. I want them to be blessed. Her ministry, she has ministered now to probably three generations of families. She has eight kids who are now all parent, parents, and yeah, it's amazing. So to me, I have certain heroes of the faith. It's someone like that Carolyn or, or a Joe, and I'm looking at my wife because she knows who I'm talking about. These people just go down the list who are not pastors. Now, I have great pastor friends who I really look up to, but some of my heroes are the ones behind the scenes. But they are serving by the energy and strength of God to meet the needs of the church. It's amazing to see, and it's, but it's the way it's supposed to be. So that's what we just see, that we see the apostles in their, their leadership, and now we see them, their delegation in verses 5 and 6, and we'll start wrapping up here, is that 
that the godly servants are recognized and, and affirmed, and, and then we see the ministry of care and compassion is now organized. So in verse 5a, we see the answer to division is humble leaders and a humble body. Verse 5, it says this, and what, and what they said, the apostles said, please the whole gathering. There's, a, there's like, oh, good, okay, they're listening to us, and, and they see the need, so they, they see a humble leadership. The apostles didn't lord or domineer. They listened, and, and they invited the church to participate. It was a humble, listening leadership. They listened prayerfully, humbly, humbly recognizing their ineffectiveness, that's what they're admitting. We can't do this. They weren't micromanagers, nor were they passive and just, you know, not taking care of it. And then we have a thankful body here. But that's what it's supposed to be. Leadership and body working together. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account to God. <laughs> that's scary for me. But here's the rest. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, meaning the body, how you follow, not that you blindly follow, please hear that, but how you follow leadership and pray for leadership and work with those in leadership over you, not because we're better, but just how God designed it, right? But how you choose to follow actually makes our job either better or worse. Isn't that funny? It's, I'm reading Hebrews 13, 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think about that. When, when leadership and the body are at odds, <laughs> have you ever been in a church like that? Oh, it's a miserable place to be. That just means, hey, we need the spirit to really step in here. We need to do what we need to do to show humility and love, admit we're wrong. Let's seek reconciliation and all that. But... Our goal is to, to lead well, and, and the body's goal is to follow well. Not because it's a power struggle. It's absolutely not about power. When it becomes a power struggle, what's involved? Self, pride, arrogance, and God is opposed to the proud. He will not bless a church that is full of proud people. Humility, love, compassion, caring for each other. That's what he wants to see, and we see that being played out here. A humble leadership. So that was the answer to their to division, was humility. They invited the church to be a part, and the church humbly followed. Then we see the answer to the danger of distraction, chapter and a half. And they chose Stephen. Now, Stephen is going to be the star of the next chapter and a half, right? So he's a main character who's being in, introduced here. And by the way, he was an evangelist, okay? A man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So he's no, you know... Sideline, oh, he can only dig, a, you know, he can only pass out money. That's not him at all. He's very talented. And Philip, oh, Philip's a star a couple chapters later. He's also an evangelist and preacher. And Prochorus and Nicanor, the list of the names, I brutalize their names, I know that. And the last one, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte meaning he had been a Gentile who became a Jew. He'd become a, a convert to Judaism. And now he'd become a convert to true Judaism. Yeah, I, I've used that phrase before. Think about it. The true followers of the God Yahweh are now called Christians. The true faith of the Jews, the true faith of Abraham, our forefather in the faith. But So he had been a proselyte, but where is he from? Antioch. Where is the center of the Gentile church going to be pretty soon? Antioch. We'll see that in later chapters. So we get some tidbits of what's coming here. 
But the answer is, is to pick men who are already serving, who had this reputation. The answer to the danger of distraction is to pass off the, leader, the, the load to these guys so that they could take over. And, and so that's the answer is to spread out the wealth. Not the wealth, but you know, spread out the load. Get others involved. Trust others to lead. And are they going to do it perfectly? Of course not. <laughs> right? We will all make mistakes. That's just part of what we do. <laughs> and that's where we get to bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, encourage one another, forgive each other, show mercy, show care, because we are going to blow it. Right? I, you know what? I give you permission to blow it. Will you give that to me, please? <laughs> and I don't mean sinfully. I'm just talking about we will make mistakes. Right? So we see that the answer to the danger of distraction is getting serving servants involved and passing it off to them. So that was the second or the first thing. The, the, the answer to the danger of growth, this monumental growth, is to delegate, to share leadership, and to organize compassion care. The ministries of compassion, they organized it better now. So the, now the danger of growth is not, hey, they're starting to get more organized. And we're going to see even further, there's more organization coming when there's the appointment of elders and deacons. We'll see that later in the church. That was a later development, but this is where we see it beginning here. And these they set before the apostles and prayed and laid their hands on them. What is the laying on the hands of? It's, it's one of those things of authority. It was symbolic of, you have our blessing to be the ones to lead as under our leadership. And it was official. And that was good for the body. Not only, hey, pick people and we'll let them go do it. No, there was an official, hey, come up, we're going to lay our hands on them. And the body sees that they have authority. So that's good for the leaders. They've been affirmed. There's a certain sense, oh, okay, I can act with some sense of authority. Again, it's a servant leadership, but that's good for the body. It's good for the body to see the leaders passing on, the humility of leaders to release some of the control. That's really good. There's a submissive body that's honoring the apostles, esteeming them. We see the apostles affirming and authorizing these men. There's no micromanaging. There's no domineering. There's not climbing the corporate ladder to get to the next level, right? But this results in a strengthened unity, a unity born by the Spirit, it says in Ephesians 4, and we're, that they're commanded to maintain, and their actions have maintained the unity and answered the danger. Again, I can give you more examples out of Philippians but I'll just you know, kind of bring this to a close here because we're getting to a close. But the unity is the Spirit's work. But it's a leader's concern, and it's the whole church's priority. It says to make every effort, in Ephesians 4.3, to maintain, not create, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. They're taking care of that here, but that's got to be our goal too, right? We have to be alert to things that need to be taken care of, not on witch hunts. We need to take care of it in a godly way. So the church is organized. There's care and compassion for all. The church grows in verse 7. The attack is averted. The church is strengthened. It says in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. Satan's attempt to crush and destroy averted and the number of the disciples multiplied, not just a little bit, it was greatly. The church is still exploding, folks. And a great, now here's the key, uh, interesting phrase, and a great many of the priests 
became obedient to the faith. Who are the priests? They're not the Pharisees. They're the ones who helped with the temple sacrifices. The temple mount was controlled by the Sadducees. They were more political. That's where Caiaphas and Ananias, that's who they were of. But here's the deal. There were courses of priests that were not political, that were not bad. We know of one from the gospel accounts who is actually really good. You ever heard of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist? He was actually working in the temple because it was his turn. They had 24 groups of priests based on the family organization, the temple organization. And they would all take turns. And you might only get one chance in your whole lifetime as a priest to serve and do any work in the temple itself. So that's why that's kind of a cool situation for Zacharias back in, you know, when John the Baptist is, hey, you're going to have a son. But these priests were part of that Temple Mount. And where had the first persecution happen? By the Sadducees on the Temple Mount. So now we see the word of God starting to take root. And it actually probably is what leads to the next wave of persecution where Stephen is brought to the forefront and it gets more vicious. Because the Sadducees... The political establishment are going to get even more challenged. Remember, why did they kill Jesus in the first place? Go back to John. It's when they heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. And they said, Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die for our nation than for us to lose our power and our status. And now it's getting worse. It's going to come back to all that again. You know, they're, they're being challenged. So I, I just pray that this challenges each one of us, you know, to think about the church because... Here we are 2,000 years later, and, and our job description hasn't changed. The people in the church, we just wear different clothes and different language, but we're still called by God to be his people, to be unified as a body, to be working to build up the body, to be people who bring peace and reconciliation to conflict within the body so we have a greater witness and we reach this community. Thousand Oaks, this area belongs to us to reach. We go on missions trips. I love the missions trips we go on, but folks, our main location to reach is where? We're standing in it. We, so may we be a church that grows in unity, grows in love, and grows in a vibrant salt and light witness, right? So let's, uh, let's close in prayer and think that through and just pray that God continues to work in our hearts uh, like he did with these people, uh, these brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, just the, your living and active word. And may this continue to challenge us to think and to examine even our role in this church and to ask that you would use us and purify us and, and, and help us to be greater mirrors of your glory, people who are being changed and, and showing what, you're, what you can do in a life not so that we have a better life now, but God, where you give hope and purpose in this life because we have eternity to look forward to. So God, thank you. Thank you for these, these, this story, real story, Lord, and may it impact our hearts and change our thinking and uh, help us to live differently uh, as your people in this world. So we love you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, if you can... Uh,